All right, again, good morning. Glad you're here. We are in Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to divide Colossians 2 into about four different kind of sections or subsections. And we're going to start in the first seven verses of Colossians, and we'll spend a few moments on the first seven verses. Let's go ahead and read that text together. He says, I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of the understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So I want us to look at these first seven verses uh, and then open it up for comments that you may have about them. I want to start with uh, there in verse 1 where he says, I have this great conflict. Uh, and the word that is used there is the same word that we get the word struggle from. In fact, some of you may have the word struggle in your text. It's a struggle. What do we think this struggle or conflict was? And there may be more than one right way to answer the question. So what is the struggle or the conflict that Paul is experiencing? And then I'll tell you what I think it is, uh, or at least based on the context here. But what do you think that struggle is? Or what could it be? Yeah, David, and then Mitch. I was just going to say uh, maybe the, the vain deceit, the, f the philosophy, the wisdom of the world versus wisdom of God. Very good. Wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. That's going to play a role later in chapter 2, is it not? Uh, Brother Mitch. In, encouraging them to in the faith uh, during the you know, current persecutions that are going to start arising. Very good. So these are Christians that are facing persecutions from a couple of different sources. There's political persecution that comes their way. There's religious persecution that's going to come their way. Um, most people, I think we said, uh, put Colossians in the early 60s. If I remember correctly, that's what we said. Uh, we are studying Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon together because they are all written from the same location or the same setting. Uh, along with what both David and Mitch said, some have suggested that it's likely a reference to the struggle that he's dealing with with false teachers, which would include those who are persecuting, perhaps, as well as those philosophers or worldly wisdom that uh, Paul talks about when he, when he particularly writes to Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, and he talks about the wisdom of the world versus the foolishness of God, and that the two have no comparison to each other. We do know that there is a fair amount of false teaching that Paul has to address and that John has to address in 1 John, and we'll talk about that here in just a moment or two as well. Verse 2, we won't go through every single verse, but here at the beginning, I want us to kind of land that helicopter and kind of hover over the first seven verses 
in more detail. He says that their hearts may be encouraged or be comforted. He says that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. Uh, an aside is to go through a study of all the references to knitting in the Bible. There's a lot of references, not a lot, but there's a fair amount of references to knitting together or knit together in love in the Bible. And that's a study that's interesting. But I thought what jumped out to me here in verse 2 is where Paul's focus remained. And that's going to take us to one of our early applications. And that is when we do well, when we wish well for others, the focus cannot be on ourselves, but it must remain on others or more importantly on God himself. And again, remember that as an application that we'll come up with very late in our study together today. I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, where right after the Beatitudes, Jesus talks about the salt and the light of the world that we are to be. And he says, let your good works glorify your Father in heaven, uh, that by your good works that may glorify your Father in heaven. And then I thought of really kind of an interesting phrase in verse 3, treasures of wisdom and treasures of knowledge. Uh, we talked about this a little bit last, I think it was last week or the week before, Kerry talked a little bit about wisdom uh, and threw that in there. And I thought he made a really good observation on the subject of wisdom and knowledge. But what is the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Ms. Janita? you have the facts, but wisdom is you know how to use them. Good. So she said that knowledge is facts, wisdom is how to use them. In the order in which he talked about them, I put up there, wisdom is by definition how to regulate a relationship with God towards redemption which is exactly what Ms. Janita was talking about there, the idea of how to use those facts. And then uh, knowledge, it comes from the word to know. And as, as good Bible students, we know that the Greek word for that is the idea of gnosis, which plays kind of an interesting role in that it seems as if uh, some of Paul's second chapter here is talking about the Gnostics. And we'll talk about them a little bit later in our study together this morning. Uh, the other thing is someone who says, I don't know if there is a God, refers to himself or herself as an agnostic. And so someone that does not know or opposed to knowing. Anything on the first three verses? I, I said we'd go through verse seven, but we'll pause at verse three. Anything that we haven't mentioned that you wanted to to mention. Uh, Miss Diana over here, and then David, if you want to talk as you walk or, or walk as you talk. I was just going to say, we're overlooking the fact that I think Paul is, is actually feeling guilty that he has not been there, that he feels like if he had been there, they would have been encouraged more. Absolutely. That's a really good observation. We know that a lot, a lot of the places that Paul wrote to were places that he either visited or would visit. This is one of those exceptions, right? So if you look on a map of the preaching journeys of Paul and you're looking for Colossae, you scratch your head and say, well, why is he not there? That's because of his inability to go there, at least as recorded in scripture. And, but he wanted to be there. And I really appreciate what Miss Diana pointed out, the idea of being able to encourage them. 
we are encouraged when we see people that we haven't seen in some time or that we haven't met. A lot of us benefit from preachers and teachers and, and, and Bible students maybe that we've never met before, but we've heard them. We've heard them talk. We've heard them teach. We've read their material. And when we finally meet them, it's like, it's so nice to meet you uh, because you have been an encouragement to me in the past and you are encouragement to me in the present. So that's, that's a really good observation. Yeah, Brother David. So James 1.5 says that if we lack wisdom, then we're to ask him for it. Uh, I haven't met anyone yet that had all the wisdom they needed. Mm-hmm. Maybe some thought they did. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But God doesn't just hit us over the head with a wisdom stick when we ask for wisdom. The Proverbs writer tells us that we're to seek her as silver and search mm-hmm. for her as for hidden treasures. So the same sort of Absolutely. terminology that's used here. Good. You know, our part is to get into his word and seek after these things. And I think it's interesting over in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 10, it says, When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, you can almost picture a colon there, and then there's a long list of things that will happen to us. Discretion will preserve us. Understanding will keep us. We'll be delivered from the way of evil, uh, delivered from the immoral woman. Verse 20 uh, says we'll... Walk in the way of goodness and keep to the paths of righteousness. Mm. Good passage to bring up. Very good. That's Proverbs 2, verses 10 and following. All right. Verse 4. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. The idea of being aware of deceptive teachers with persuasive words. Does that have any application to us today? And it kinda, we kind of chuckle and we say, well, of course it does. Because we uh, deal with people today uh, who maybe say something that sounds persuasive. If you listen to an argument uh, at face value, uh, again, hear me out here, from someone who uh, does not believe in the singleness of the church, who doesn't believe in the authority of the scriptures, who doesn't believe in the necessity of baptism, whatever the case may be, some that we would disagree with based on scripture, and you listen to their persuasive words, sometimes they sound, well, well, that kind of makes sense. And that kind of go on the surface. And that kind of goes with the sermon that we're talking about today, that all of us go through a progress of faith, like Nicodemus went through, wherein we may question at some point, well, is that really true? And I think most of us, or at least a lot of us, at some point, especially in our younger years, may have said, well, I don't know. That's what I've been taught. But is that really true? And we go through that process of trying to reconcile what we've been taught with the truth and make sure that it is one and the same. But that's certainly true for application today. Verse 5, he says, I want to see your good order. The NIV says, I want to see how disciplined you are. Kind of going back to what Miss Diana talked about, the idea of, I want to see these things in you. I want to hear about these things in you. I want to witness these things in you. And I want to see how disciplined you are. If uh, Paul were to write a letter to us at Northfield uh, and he says, I want to see how disciplined you are, we would want to say, okay, I want to, I, want to, I want to appear disciplined and I want to be disciplined. I don't want to just appear it. I want to actually be it. And then verse 6 and 7, him, H-I-M, 
or he, capital H-E, is key to the study of Colossians because it is so Christ-centric. Three things here in verses 6 and 7. We are to walk in him, we are to be rooted in him, and we are to be built up in him. All three of those things are goals for us and are necessary for us to be pleasing to God. Rooted, built up, and walk in Him. And then, of course, the latter part, abounding in it. And then those last two words, we talked about this before with thanksgiving. There always must be a combination of our obedience to God along with our being thankful to Him. So to put it another way, a person can't be fully obedient to God unless he's thankful to him. Think about that for a moment. We have to be thankful to God in order to be obedient to him. All right, now we'll break after the seven verses again. Uh, Anything else we wanted to point out here? All right, let's go ahead and look at verses 8 through uh, 10. I want to do a shorter section here. Just look at verses 8 and 10. He starts out by saying in the New King James Version, beware. And anytime the word beware is used in the Bible, we should say, whoa, hang on here. Something big's about to happen. And sure enough, beware, he says, lest anyone cheat you is the word that is used here in the New King James Version. Uh, Literally, it comes from the idea of taking you as a captive or as a slave. Through philosophy, there it is, going back to what both Mitch and David mentioned a few moments ago, and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ, for in him, there's the in him again, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So... There are lots of things that, according to the text, that we can be cheated by way of. So, and Paul, it seems to me, likes to make lists. Uh, and maybe that's because I like to make lists as well, uh, that I view his letters through that, through that lens. Uh, but I see lists that he makes. And he makes a list of, I count, four things that we can be cheated by. The first of those is what David pointed out a few moments ago, and that is philosophy. And I couldn't help, we won't take the time to go over and read Acts chapter 17, but do you remember what happens in Acts chapter 17, verses 19 through about, oh, verse 21, 22? Remember what was going on there? Mars Hill, right? And remember that at the kind of conclusion of that paragraph, Luke records that the men gathered together Uh, on it seems like a routine basis just to hear something new something different now we've heard something new today well that's great well we're going to hear something new tomorrow no application of it no desire to obey it when you actually find the truth but just hearing something new empty deceit and philosophy which brings us to the second thing that he mentions here and that is empty deceit The third thing, and this kind of goes back to what we talked about a few moments ago, is human traditions. What's Matthew chapter 15? I may have put this in my notes. I can't remember if I put this in my notes for later. But what's Matthew 15 verses 8 through 10 tell us? Remember what that says? 
There's a vain worship that pursues the teachings of men. Very good. Vain worship that is rooted in the teachings or the traditions of men. Are there religious people today who only do things based on human traditions? Of course. Uh, certain major religious organizations are highly structured around human traditions that go back sometimes hundreds if not more years. Um, and we need to make sure, going back to what Paul, when he said to Timothy, that we follow traditions but don't follow traditions. So there are traditions that we follow that come from the apostles, right? And there are traditions that we don't follow because they come from men. And we've got to make sure that we separate those two out. Uh, we all, we all, there's a third set of traditions, and that's beyond the scope of our study together today. But very briefly, we have traditions as members of this congregation that we understand are just tradition that we, it would be wrong for us to mandate someone else to follow that, another congregation to follow that particular tradition. If we sing four songs, five songs, six songs, seven songs, have two prayers, four prayers, six prayers, those are just choices that the elders have made so that we can have organized worship. But we all understand, and if we go someplace, uh, I remember the first time when I was a little boy where they, where they would have announcements at the end of services, and I thought, what is going on here? Announcements, who's sick and uh, who's out of town and who's lost a loved one, that comes at the beginning of services. You know, I was like, that just, it's, it doesn't matter uh, how you do that. Um, and it's just traditional kind of things that we do. Uh, and then the fourth thing is, he mentions here, our basic principles of the world that we can be cheated by way of. The New American Standard uses the word elementary principles of the world. It seems to me that at this point in the chapter and at this point in the letter, Paul is kind of putting a focus on some of the false teachers who are cheating or attempting to cheat the saints at Colossae with all of these traditions. And that verse 9 goes to the heart of that argument where he says the fullness of the Godhead bodily is found in whom? Jesus, right? The Christ. That's where the fullness of the, body, uh, of the Godhead bodily is. And we find that, and we'll come back to that here in just a second here, that the idea is completeness in Christ alone. We look at that and we say, well, of course it is. But to someone who had been influenced by a false teacher, false teachers in the first century, whether they be the Gnostics or whether they be the angel worshipers that we're going to get into in a few moments, which, are, which are, share the same path oftentimes historically, were in the business of taking Jesus from this level or way, way, way up there and lowering him while also getting ahead of ourselves, taking angels, for example, and doing what to angels? raising them up so you're lowering jesus to raise up someone else saying well jesus is special but jesus isn't as spectacular as we believe him to be and as the scriptures teach us to be those things we have to be firmly rooted that jesus christ is the full head of god in bodily form and we do not apologize for that 
because he's that special. He's that spectacular. So there's a lot of other things we can say about those three verses, but let's pause and see if there's anything you wanted to add. Brother David? So a lot of the Gnostics believed that the fullness of God was divided up amongst a number of angelic beings, and maybe that's where you're mm-hmm. talking about going to next, but one of those, uh, one of which created the material world, supposedly. And they also believed that everything in the material world, including the body, was inherently evil. And so they said, well, Jesus, therefore, could not have been God. Right. Or that if he was, he was just some apparition or some spirit or something like that. And so, so Paul is saying, no, the fullness of God absolutely dwells in Jesus in bodily form. And if you want to know something about the love of God, look at Jesus. If you want to know something about the patience of God, look at Jesus. Mm-hmm. If you want to know something about the holiness of God, look at Jesus. Right. Very good. And that's why I think it's very important for us. We, we sometimes get structured into reading one verse to the next verse to the next verse. Verses 8 and 9 go together very, uh, very much so. The idea that verse 8, beware of these false teachers. Verse 9, for in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Uh, Brother Mitch up here. And then we're going to go ahead and transition to, we're going to look at verses 11 through 15 here. Brother Mitch. The same argument we're kind of talking about on Wednesday nights as well with going mm-hmm. through Deuteronomy. I mean, the, the way that you protect against false teaching and these ideas is you are grounded and established in God's word. And you don't open doors, you know, the same way you protect a city with your walls. You don't open the door to let the enemy come in. You keep it closed uh, so those ideas and thoughts can't permeate through the congregation. That's, that's really, really good. Whose responsibility is it to make sure that that doesn't get into a congregation or into our own minds? Everyone. It's everyone, right? I mean, we, we do put a lot of that responsibility on our shepherds, and rightly so. There's biblical precedent for that that those who serve as elders uh, are shepherding the flock. Uh, Acts chapter 20 talks a great deal, verses 29, 30, 31, about doing exactly what Mitch said. But I like Mitch's response because I think he's correct, that ultimately that's the responsibility of each of us to make sure that only the truth is taught, only the truth is practiced, only the truth is tolerated. And that's a responsibility of each of us as Christians. And someone might say, especially someone who's maybe new to Christianity, might say, well, that sounds like an an awful lot of responsibility. That'd be really tough. Well, it is an awful lot of responsibility. And it can be tough sometimes because we have to stand up for the truth, uh, which puts us at odds with sometimes even our own family uh, or our own friends or whatever the case may be. Uh, All right, verses 11 through 15. In him, there it is again, in him. You were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You are buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him having forgiven you all trespasses having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. All right. 
So as I've, I've mentioned now three times, go and find all the in hymns in Colossians. Find all the references to him and he in Colossians, and you'll, you'll learn a lot. If you want to study Colossians just through, through that pair of spectacles, certainly that's uh, worthwhile. Again, it seems to me that in verse, 50, or verse 11 and 12, that Paul makes a list. He says, okay, in him... What is it that's happened in Jesus Christ? Well, I count three things that have transpired. One, we are circumcised in a figurative way. We'll talk about that here in just a minute. Uh, We are buried with him in baptism. And then the third thing that is referenced there is that we are raised with him in newness of life. Very similar to Romans chapter 6, verse 4. How are we circumcised in a figurative way? And uh, going back to what Mitch pointed out, the, the parallels to Deuteronomy, there's some parallels to, to even our study of Genesis, Exodus, and Deuteronomy that we've been engaging in on Wednesday nights for the last <coughs> six to nine months. But when, explain that to someone who has very little biblical knowledge. What's this circumcision made without hands? That may be a, a loaded question. It may be a, a tough question to, to answer. But how would you answer that? It's a removal of sin. A removal of sin. Okay, good. Good. David? So just as physical circumcision is a removal of the flesh, spiritual circumcision is a removal of fleshly things of the old man of sin, as he's sometimes called, and in baptism is the instrument whereby that happens. Good. So there's a couple different things we point out there. Brother John. Good. Very good. Thank you for those. Brother John? Another way of saying repentance. <coughs> yeah. Because repentance is a change, not only in one's mind, but also in his choice or her choice of actions. And circumcision, like David talked about, of the flesh is a physical action just as much as we manifest the physical actions uh, and do what God has asked us to do. Uh, In our study last night with the young people, Jason pointed out a verse that I had uh, never really thought about before, but Revelation 22, verse 7, says, Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. The idea of keeping or doing Matthew chapter 7 talks about he that does the will of my Father uh, as well. Okay? Uh, verse 13, you were dead in your trespasses. The New American Standard uses the word wrongdoings. So there is a right and there is a wrong in the way that we conduct ourselves. Um, and we need to make sure that we're okay with admitting that people in the world oftentimes don't like the idea of right and wrong. They don't want us to talk about right and wrong uh, because that means that I've got to change the way that I've conducted myself or I am conducting myself. We believe that there is wrong. And he says, we are made alive together with him. Then two other things that I wanted to point out here on verses uh, 13, 14, 15, and that is in verse 14, He's wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. Uh, 
the New American Standard says, which were hostile to us. Hostile is a much stronger word than contrary to us. This, incidentally, and we are probably familiar with this, is one of our go-to passages, not just this verse, but this context, to help us talk about why we obey the New Testament and why we don't obey the, the Old Testament, at least in terms of its laws. And it seems as if uh, this legalistic view of things, legalistic pleas, from some of the false teachers of the first century, of the mid-first century, that he's trying to answer those charges here in this particular text. Then verse 15, and then we'll pause for a minute, it says that Jesus disarmed powers and principalities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphed over them. So my question is, uh, and I think it's not a hard question to answer, but it might go a couple of different directions, is how did Jesus disarm powers? So let's just pause there. You can either answer that question or other thoughts on verses 11 through 15 that we haven't covered. But I do want to address, how did Jesus disarm those powers? Through the cross, cross, ultimately, right? Uh, Through the cross, Jesus did a lot of things. You can make a, a list of things and make a sermon out of it what the cross did Um, and one of the things that he did is he disarmed all powers making it so that they have no power to us one of the other things we talked about last night in our young people study was in James chapter 2 the idea of liberty in Christ we are free in Christ we are no longer slave those powers of slavery have been taken away Now, we know as students of the Bible, Romans chapter 6, that even though we're not slaves to sin, we are now slaves to righteousness. We're okay with that. Any other thoughts on verses 11? Yeah, Brother John here, 11 through 15. Verse 13 said, you were, past tense, uh, dead in your trespasses, sin. You bury dead people, not live people. Absolutely. And so these brethren, they had heard the gospel and believed it and repented. There's that circumcision made without hands. And uh, were buried, buried that old man of sin and baptism and made possible by the blood of Christ was raised from the baptism. That new man who is now alive and not, not dead anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, some, one of the points that we often make in a discussion with someone who doesn't believe in what Paul is teaching here or in Romans chapter 6 or what the book of Acts talks about on and on and on and on and on is that you don't bury uh, live people. At least you try not to. You bury someone who's dead. And then what is Jesus teaching? What is Paul teaching? There's a rising from the dead to a new life. And again, I'm reminded of Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. I appreciate that, uh, what John said. All right, let's take the last uh, nine or so minutes and look at the last uh, seven verses or so here. Uh, Let's start in verses 16 through 19. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you out of your reward, taking delight in false humility, 
worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Uh, again, Paul is using one of his favorite analogies to describe Christianity, to describe the church, and that is the concept of a body, of a, of a human body. First of all, he says, there needs to be a level of judgment and forbearance regarding things that are of no consequence to God. And I think we're going to come back and hit that one more time together in our study together today. I'm reminded of Romans chapter 14. When he's talking about issues like what you eat, what you drink, uh, festivals, new moons, Sabbaths, holidays, feasts, there are certain things that Jewish Christians were suggesting or even going as far as mandating that all Christians do. And Paul, who himself came from a Jewish background, says those things are unimportant. If you choose to celebrate that particular day or observe that feast, you have the right to do so, but you don't have the right to force another Christian to do so. And it goes back to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, which I'll reference at the conclusion of our study together today. Moving kind of quickly here, the shadow of things to come, the substance belongs to Christ. I like, that. I like that version just a little bit better. The substance belongs to Christ. Um, what does that mean? Same thing as it meant earlier in the chapter when he talks about the fullness being in Christ. Our Very good. Foundation, everything that we are to be is rooted in Christ. Good. Fullness and substance are the two words that can be used almost interchangeably here. Appreciate Jonathan mentioning that. Uh, all these things go back to a focus on Jesus Christ. I have a, a Bible that, not the one I'm using here, but another one that I use a lot of times. And it, I, I should have copied it, but it has this neat little diagram where it has Christ at the top. And then it has arrows coming out, like four different arrows in, in describing the book of Colossians. Because Colossians is all about rooted in Christ, not rooted in false deceit, not rooted in anything else. But we are rooted in Jesus the Christ. The substance belongs to him. Um, verse 18, I thought this, there's twice where he uses the phrase false humility. He uses it once here in verse uh, 18. He uses it in verse 23. But how can false humility be manifested? And I, I guess this is a little more uh, application. How, how is false humility seen? Or witnessed. Maybe I should have asked that at the beginning, give you 30 minutes to ponder that. Because that's not necessarily the easiest question. But Brother Mitch will take a stab at it. I think one example that you, you immediately think of would be like uh, medieval times uh, a priest, a Catholic mm -hmm. priest who takes a vow of poverty but is living in essentially a mansion. That's really good. I hadn't thought of it, that, that particular aspect. Thank you. We know what humility is. We know what the idea of lowering ourselves so that God will raise us up. We understand that concept very well. But 
we understand that from a financial point of view, we understand that from a political point of view, we have to understand that from a spiritual point of view as well, that that can be the, the case. Going back to what Jonathan said just a few moments ago, growth from God comes through the head and only through the head. It's all about Jesus. Again, look for all the capital H's in Colossians. If that's why you want to study Colossians, look for all the capital H's. Head, he, him. All right. Uh, moving quickly here as we're going to run out of time. Uh, verses 20 through 23. Uh, let's read them real quick. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle which all concern things which perish with using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. There it is again. In self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Um, so let's talk about that for just a second. And if we run out of time, we'll, we'll pick up and, and highlight these things next week. Uh, these legalistic pleas to stick to these false doctrines, Jewish-based doctrines, doctrines of men, whatever the case may be, are a way in which those who self-abase, that's the New American Standard, verse 18, achieve their means. So remember that, for example, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus taught as one having authority and not as one of the scribes or Jewish leaders. Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. He says that repeatedly. So, so many of the religious leaders of the first century were all about power reserved to themselves so that they can make others feel less important. Jesus comes along and says nonsense to the whole thing. He says, humility and being willing to admit I am nothing without God is a real sign of spiritual maturity, not the other way around. Um, there in verse 21, I think, verse 20, he says, basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world as if you were living in the world? Uh, that reminds me of what our really greatest challenge is, that we live in the world, but that we are not of the world. That's probably at its very core one of the three or four toughest things about being a saint is that we are living in a world surrounded by all kinds of ugliness and unrighteousness, but yet we are to be different from that world. And God didn't say go live uh, separately from the world in the sense that you never interact with them. That would not be good because then we have no opportunity to be encouraging to them, to be teaching them, to be a light to the world. So that's a really uh, a great challenge, and I was reminded of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 as well. And then the last thing here, and we'll, we'll pause here, is the idea of commandments and teachings of men. And Jonathan referenced Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 through 10 a few moments ago. Uh, there in verse 22, according to the commandments and doctrines of men, those are things that we don't follow. We want to see in Scripture whether or not the things are true, and then we will follow them, and then we will teach them accordingly. We'll get to verse 23 uh, next week and the applications at the beginning of our study, but I want to take 30 seconds if you've got any final, any final comments.
to what we've talked about today. And we'll, we'll deal with verse 23 next week.